Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, we are going to be discussing anarchy in the UK. Uh, we just had a chat a few months ago, actually, about the crisis in Britain, actually just in July, where I discussed with uh, Adam Booth from the uh, uh, British section of the IMT, Socialist Appeal. Uh, I have Adam Booth back here today because uh, actually just in a few short months, a hell of a lot has transpired. We've had two prime ministers go... We now have a new prime minister, a monarch died, you now have a new monarch. Um, yeah, so at the last podcast we discussed the crisis and why at some point or another Johnson was going to have to go. He has since gone and the situation has evolved quite rapidly. Um, so yeah, with me again today I have uh, Adam Booth. Uh, hello Adam, welcome back. Hi, Joel. Uh, thanks for having me back. I think we'll have to make this a regular feature at the pace things are going. Yes, I guess so, if, if it keeps developing like this. Um, uh, yeah, so I think a lot of, a lot of Canadians uh, pay attention to British politics and uh, over the years, uh, the ref Scottish referendum, Brexit, and Corbyn, um, Boris Johnson, etc., and I think everyone knew that there was a new prime minister, but it was so quick that we maybe we don't even a lot of people don't even know who Liz Truss was. So do you maybe want to fill us in, like who was Liz Truss? How did she come into power, and what what did she do to uh, to be gone so quickly? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, uh, when you're only in power for forty four days, there's not much uh, time to really leave a mark. But somehow she managed to explode everything i think uh you know she'll probably be uh going onto the lecture circuit now talking about how she crashed the economy in just 44 days the the economist magazine she put it quite well where they said uh you know she she came in i think on a, on uh, the beginning of september around the 5th or 6th of september um uh she uh, very soon after that faced the death of uh, queen elizabeth ii and that led to 10 days of national mourning uh, where no one was doing anything other than just waving the flag. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, she announced a, uh, a budget uh, kind of outlining her economic program that tanked the economy. Uh, so, you know, that's quite a, quite a quick uh, achievement, you know, to <laughs> only be in power for a few weeks and, uh, and 10 days of those to be spent mourning. And yet, or, you know, in that short space of time, managing to achieve quite a cataclysmic uh, disaster from the point of view of British capitalism. She, she was elected following um, 
Boris Johnson's resignation. Boris was, as, as he said, soon after we spoke, he was forced out by a kind of mass resignation of MPs over all the various scandals that had built up. And uh, basically then there was a leadership contest to see who would replace him. And the final two candidates in that were Liz Truss, who'd been the foreign secretary under Boris Johnson, uh, kind of, you know, very opportunistic had kind of uh, waged war against the EU had, had kind of jumped into tanks, on, you know, in, in Ukraine to kind of show how patriotic she was. And uh, the other candidate was Rishi Sunak, who's now uh, replaced Liz Truss. Now, Liz Truss stood over the summer campaign, the election campaign. Um, uh, she stood uh, basically trying to appeal to the Tory party membership uh, with the most rabid reactionary program. I think the best way to describe her is kind of Margaret Thatcher cosplay, basically. Um, but, you know, whereas the first time was tragedy, the second time really is farce. You know, she is... Uh, completely wooden, completely um, vacuous, uh, com and, and completely kind of myopic and, and self-seeking. Uh, you know, very much following in the mold of Boris Johnson, but in but without even any of the the kind of charisma that Boris Johnson nominally had. And uh, and she basically came in promising to kind of uh, liberate the economy by uh, cutting taxes for big business and the rich. It's all the same sort of thing. That Thatcher promised in the 80s. But whereas Thatcher promised that at a time when, you know, capitalism globally was entering into an upswing, where you had, you know, fat to be chopped, where you had, you know, businesses to be privatized and workers to be exploited in new markets and things like that. Now we're in a completely different epoch. We're in a period where capitalism globally and in Britain has been in crisis for, for 12, 14 years where you've had years of austerity, where the privatization has already happened across industry. There's nothing left to, to sell off when it comes to, to British industry. And, and so her program in this context is completely utopian and uh, completely reckless and, and, and bizarre, actually. Even the bourgeois were not wanting the things she was promising. But the thing is, she, she, she like Boris Johnson, wasn't really acting in the interests of the bourgeois and the capitalist class. The Tory party has, has basically become completely taken over by these kind of Brexiteer reactionary lunatics. Frankly, there's no other word for them. Very frothing kind of, uh, you know, I think David Cameron described them as swivel-eyed loons, uh, which I think uh, is, is, a, is a phrase we've used in our articles. And these are the people who are ultimately got to decide who the Tory leader was. And Liz Truss aimed directly at them, whereas Rishi Sunak tried to aim himself a bit more at the city of London and the serious bourgeois promising kind of fiscal responsibility and all this kind of thing. Liz Truss was, was purely just, you know, giving the, the membership what they wanted to hear. And uh, having been elected on that program, and as I said, uh, having, you know, immediately she came in, uh, the first thing she had to do actually was announce a huge bailout pro program for the energy industry because of the huge energy costs, uh, energy prices are going through the roof because of, uh, you know, inflation in general and, and the war in Ukraine and so forth, and uh, long-term decline of British uh, industry and infrastructure. It's all led to this, this humongous energy crisis that is going to leave millions in fuel poverty. She came in immediately offering a big bailout that, that basically uh, would, would drive up government debt to astronomical levels on top of all the debt that's accumulated since uh, 2008 and with the pandemic. 
And then on top of that, after the 10 days of mourning, she came in, as I said, offered a, a new budget outlining her program of tax cuts for the rich combined with increased public spending at a time when the Bank of England and, and central banks across the world were talking about trying to tighten up and, uh, and, and uh, you know, take demand out of the economy. She was just, uh, you know, talking about more government borrowing uh, and, and, you know, just this kind of uh, reckless spending from the point of view of British capitalism. And the market said no, basically, <laughs> very, very clearly, very, uh, you know, very quickly, actually, her, her chancellor, man called Kwasi Kwarteng, he announced this budget on the 23rd of September, I think it was Friday, the 23rd of September. And as he was speaking, the markets were reacting, the pound was, the pound was plummeting, borrowing costs for the government were soaring. And it was very clear, the markets did not believe this program was viable. Um, this Thatcherite kind of uh, tax cuts for the rich program. And, uh, and then this basically led to pension funds going bust. It led to uh, the threat of mortgages going you know, through the roof. Uh, and, and this was gonna affect middle-class layers of society who normally would vote for the Tories actually. And the Tories therefore saw their polling figures collapse uh, even faster than the pound actually. And, uh, and, and, and you have the situation just before Rishi Sunak came in uh, in the last week where the, the Tories were polling, I think, 30 percentage points or even 39 percentage points behind Labour. They'd collapsed to about 12 percent. And this is remarkable. This is used to be the most stable kind of strong bourgeois party in the world. And here it was reduced to, uh, to this, this pygmy kind of vote, basically. And, and it really showed you how uh, the crisis of British capitalism had been Kind of exacerbated, accelerated by these kind of reckless actions of uh, of Liz Truss and and the, the Tory leaders, and you know it's following on from the, the the kind of shot in the foot that was Brexit. Now you know they were they were helping to cause an even bigger uh, implosion in British capitalism, and it was their own supporters as well as the working class more generally who were going to pick up the bill, and and uh, as a result, the polling figures were dropping. Tory MPs were worried that they were going to lose their seats and uh, worried the whole party was going to be annihilated. And therefore, they, uh, they, they moved along with the markets to, to help get rid of Liz Truss after just 44 or 45 days in power. Well, sharp turns, sudden changes. <laughs> One of the most stable parties historically of capitalists of any capitalist nation in the world, uh, going through one of the most profound crises that we've ever seen. Um, yeah, so I don't know, I guess a big question, I mean, it's really great that you've explained all of this here for, for people who maybe have not followed it so closely, um, that ultimately what we have here is uh, the capitalists not being in control or not have been control, even was the case under, under Boris Johnson, where they said, what about the business? And he said, F business, basically. <laughs> That they're not—they're obviously not entirely in control of their own party. Uh, the politicians mm. kind of have a bit of an agenda of their own sometimes, and this is an example of them. And this this says something profound about uh, bourgeois democracy, which really isn't very democratic at all. That at the end of the day, you can elect whoever you want. That the the capitalists are going to make the decisions. And yeah, so the run on the pound, the market's tanking, 
Um, I guess this leads into a question of like, how is any of this democratic? Is this democratic? I mean, we don't really care much for Liz Truss, obviously, but there's there's a there's a big question here and precedent set basically. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to talk to that? Like, was any of this democratic? Uh, yeah. How did, how did, I don't know uh, if you have any comments about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really has shown uh, to people that, you know, like you say, it is ultimately the bankers, the bosses, the billionaires who get to decide uh, the economic uh, program of, uh, of any country. And uh, yeah, that was very sharply revealed. Like the markets, uh you know they reacted uh, very badly um <laughs> and uh and and that helped to drive up uh you know the, the government's costs and uh tank as i say the pension funds and things like that and uh and, and it was ultimately it was the tory mps who moved that got rid of liz trust but and the, and even before they got rid of her they got rid of her chancellor quasi Quateng, and put in a replacement jeremy hunt who was promising, you know, more fiscal responsibility, you know, to balance the books with austerity and all these sorts of things. In other words, the program that the serious capitalists were, were demanding and that, and that capitalism as a system was demanding, like, this is the point. It's not, it's not just some um, kind of uh, renegade uh, vigilante bankers kind of uh, holding Liz Trust to account. It's the capitalist system at the end of the day uh, that has its own laws, it has its logic, um, and, you know, in this, in this uh, epoch where British capitalism is in deep, deep crisis, uh, you, you know, uh, you've got interest rates going up, you've got inflation out of control. Um, there's no room in a, in, a, in a deep situation like that to, for the government to just be spending money left, right and centre. Obviously, we've got no uh, sympathy for Liz Truss and the Tories and, uh, and, and, and certainly won't be crying any tears to see her gone um but it does uh you know it, it, i think a lot of people have celebrated you know liz trust being pushed out on the left and and I'm, I'm quite rightly but we should also offer a word of warning and say that you know whereas liz trust was trying to take on the markets in you know it, with this kind of thatcherite agenda in favor of the super rich and uh and, and offering them these kind of tax cuts and so forth, this trickle down economics, as she calls it. Whereas she was doing that, the left, had they come in under Jeremy Corbyn, for example, would have faced a very similar situation um, from a market, uh, you know, from the bankers basically uh, refusing to countenance a, a left wing program that, that, you know, was based on uh, government spending and uh, taxing the rich and uh, nationalization and printing money and any of these sorts of uh, ideas that the left reformists put forward, where they try and find a way, you know, out uh, of the crisis within the confines of capitalism, you know, try, try and offer a few crumbs, but without fundamentally taking control out of the hands of the bankers and the, and, and the big businesses, you know, then they would have also faced a similar kind of sabotage, financial blackmail and so forth. So, I think, yeah, we should obviously, uh, you know, we here at Socialist Appeal, we're, we're, we're celebrating uh, Liz Truss's downfall, but we also uh, have to offer a word of warning to the left and to the Labour movement that uh, a future left-wing Labour government or workers' government will face a very similar situation unless it moves to actually 
overthrow capitalism and put power in the hands of the working class. And that means above all, nationalizing the banks, the, in, the big industries, the, the major monopolies and planning the economy so that the laws of the market aren't what decide, but the laws of socialist planning and, and workers control. Yeah, so yeah, really not democratic at all. It's just capitalists, uh, finance capital, the banks, the, the when they say the markets have decided, what does that mean? Everybody knows what that means. <laughs> what that means. Uh, yeah, it's really, uh, and that's, that's how democracy works under capitalism, ultimately. Um, so, I mean, speaking of this, <laughs> so now we have a new prime minister and a new leader of the Conservative Party, Rishi Sunak. So, again, he, uh, you mentioned him briefly already. He had previously ran against Liz Truss when Boris Johnson had resigned. Um, and now he is Conservative leader. Uh, I don't know, do you want to introduce who is Rishi Sunak? Um, and yeah, and how did he become conservative leader? Yeah, so Rishi Sunak's kind of risen up the ranks of the Tory party quite quickly. I think he only became an MP in about 2015. He's ultimately not that different from the, the rest of them in the sense that, you know, there's there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hypocritical kind of uh, cynical nonsense going on in the establishment press where they say, oh, you know, Britain's first Asian prime minister and you know, isn't it wonderful to have some diversity and so forth? But let's let's keep it simple. He is uh, another rich, super rich prime minister who, who is going to lead a government of the rich, by the rich, for the rich. So on a class basis, he is absolutely no different from any of his predecessors. Um, but what he does represent, if you like, is a bit more of a serious wing of the bourgeoisie. Um, he was the chancellor under Boris Johnson uh, during the pandemic, and he was seen by the, the bourgeois then as, as generally having handled things quite well. He, he kind of bailed out the system. He bailed out big business. He, he kept the economy kind of uh, chugging along uh, at, at the expense, obviously, of building up a huge amount of debt. And then now he is promising that that debt will be paid back by the working class in the form of austerity. They're, they're saying there's something like a 40 billion pound hole in the budget of, of the government. And that's going to be filled by uh, cutting public services, uh, you know, and, and all these other things, uh, more attacks on the working class, basically. Um, so that's his program, basically. It's, whereas, as we discussed, you know, earlier, the Tory party had been a little bit more under the control of these uh, Kind of more demagogic opportunistic elements more uh, more egotistical types and more reckless types you could say like boris johnson and and liz trust this you know this this now represents the establishment kind of taking back control of the tory party a bit more i mean they were terrified because uh after liz trust stood down boris johnson claimed that he was going to run uh to be the next leader that he was going to have this bounce back he was going to make this triumphant return. And the thing is, he has a significant wing of support within the party. Uh, people think he was uh, stabbed in the back by Rishi Sunak, who actually helped to kind of, you know, get rid of Boris Johnson earlier in the summer um, by yeah, resigning. Didn't, didn't he say he had 100 MPs uh, like support? Yeah, him? he had a, he had enough to do it, right? Yeah. And it, it looked like it could even happen that people I think the, 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 the betting markets were saying, okay, this this guy actually could do the unthinkable and and it was it was quite funny seeing the establishment press kind of 
getting in this sweat, worried that Boris was going to come back. You had another candidate who was a bit of a non-entity, a, a, a person called Penny Morden. She 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 dropped out as well. And then mysteriously, having uh, ha- put his hat into the ring, um, Boris Johnson suddenly withdrew it, and and Rishi Sunak was effectively coronated uh, as the new prime minister uh, at the start of this week on Monday. Uh, ironically, he was uh, sworn in by a king who has yet to even be coronated himself because uh, his mother, uh, dear Lizzie, uh, only passed away a couple of months ago and, uh, and the, the coronation ceremony for King Charles III isn't until next May, I think. But in any case, um, Rishi Sunak mysteriously suddenly found himself the only candidate and he was therefore elected, or not elected, anointed, we should say, the new prime minister. Um, and it's all a bit mysterious, but this is kind of how the Tory party works. They, uh, the, there's, there's the men in grey suits, as they describe it, these kind of uh, establishment figures who, who kind of control the, the strings uh, behind the, you know, you know, and do these deals behind closed doors. The same thing actually happened in 2017 or 2016, I think it was, when Theresa May came in. She also was standing against several other candidates and mysteriously they all dropped out one after another. So there is this kind of precedent where if the establishment really wants to, to get a certain outcome, they can try and twist people's arms and do deals. And who knows what was said to, to guarantee this. Uh, Rishi Sunak probably offered Boris Johnson some sort of return in the future or, or some of his allies' jobs in the cabinet. Um, or maybe the, the situation was just that Boris Johnson looked at the state of the Tory party, which is completely torn apart by this civil war between these different factions. Maybe he saw the state of the UK economy and uh, said, nah, that's not for me. <laughs> Boris Johnson liked to be a popular prime minister who kind of dished out money and, and talked about leveling up. He didn't like to be the, the prime minister who has to carry out the deepest program of cuts in a, in a generation. So. I think he might well have looked at it and thought, not for me. And, and whereas Rishi Sunak, he's, yeah, he's the establishment's man. He's the banker. He used to be a banker himself, actually. And in, in fact, his family is, is a multimillionaire. Uh, his, his, his wife is, is from a, an Indian family. It's one of the richest families in India, you know, potentially even billionaires. So he is very much uh, not a man of the people, as, as he tries to present himself, but very much a man of the, uh, of the bankers and the bosses and the billionaires. And, uh, and he's there to basically do the bidding of the ruling class and, uh, and try and bring back a bit of stability and order for British capitalism. But he's going to struggle because at the end of the day, like I say, the, the Tory party is, is split completely down the middle between uh, these really rabid Brexiteer reactionary types and, uh, and the more kind of serious establishment wing. And, uh, and it's, it's hard to see how that's gonna stay together, that coalition, when uh, you're gonna have uh, all of these um, public services being attacked and cut, and all these MPs are gonna be getting floods of complaints from their constituents saying, you know, what's happening to our public services, what's happening to the welfare, the pensions, all of these are going to come under attack. And I think, therefore, that even though then the ruling class have got their man in power, it's it, whether he lasts, it, you know, is, a, is an open question. I think he could be gone, you know, who knows, not necessarily as quick as Liz Truss, but uh, there's going to be a lot of instability, far from, far from restoring stability. He's going to preside over 
one of the most turbulent periods in the history of British capitalism. Yeah, so I remember like following this when List Trust was gone. It was like everyone was everything's kind of up in air. Nobody knows what's going to happen exactly. And it was very fishy what happened because there was the question of members voting on it, which technically the Conservative Party members are supposed to vote on who the leader is. That's what they did with Liz Truss. And that's why Liz Truss won, because she was sort of more in the Boris Johnson wing mm. against Sunak. And then so with this coming, you could tell that people were freaking out. Oh, no, is Johnson going to run again? And certainly Johnson, much like Trump, these type of people, they don't usually they don't <laughs> they're never totally gone, you know. They're those types of egotistical characters mm. that never want to give up, never think they're defeated, you know. Um, but yeah, Johnson steps down, which I don't know, was he threatened behind the scenes or something? I don't know what's going on. Um, and then uh, the other candidate there um, steps down at the last minute and then, oh, no more candidates. We don't need a membership vote. He's acclaimed. Mm -hmm. Isn't that mm -hmm. isn't that isn't that convenient? <laughs> anyway, that just gets back to the question of democracy as well. Basically, you have the prime minister of one of the most powerful capitalist nations on the country who's gotten in power in this very sneaky, fishy way that's basically <laughs> a behind-the-scenes deal. And yeah, like you said, he's uh, not a man of the people. He's, a, he's, he's in, insanely rich. Him and his wife have a combined fortune of 730 million pounds, um, which... I think by Canadian dollars, that'd make him a millionaire. Although I don't know where the pound's at in relation to the Canadian dollar. Maybe it's tanked so far. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's a finance capitalist, used to work for Goldman's, Goldman Sachs. Like, this is the type of person. And yes, this is the type of person that the bourgeoisie are extremely confident having in power. It's their man. They're fine with that. Um, anyway, just before we get into what will his, you know, we have to obviously get into the question of what will his rule look like. Um, before we get into that, I just want to take a short commercial break. Um, yeah, you're listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution. Uh, I'm here with Adam Booth from the uh, British section of uh, IMT, Socialist Appeal, talking about uh, the, uh, the uh, crisis in the, in the United Kingdom. Um, uh, yeah, we have a, uh, as, as is tradition, I'm going to read out our, our subscribers that we've had over the last week. We have two publications. We have Fight Back, which is our English language publication, uh, and linked to the website marxist.ca. And yeah, this Fight Back comes out every two weeks. And uh, I encourage you, if you listen to this podcast, to get to subscribe to Fight Back magazine to get Marxist analysis delivered to your door every two weeks. Um, Marxist analysis of Canadian politics, of working class politics in Canada and internationally. And yeah, we have, uh, with that in mind, we have 10 new subscribers this week. We have uh, Manuel, Balpreet, Chad, Leo, Jean-Vievre, Yun-Siang, Emily, Marcus, Latanya, and Andrea. So yeah, thank you comrades, friends, supporters for subscribing to Fight Back magazine and to our French language publication, La Riposte Socialiste, linked to the website marxist.qc.ca. We have two new subscribers this week, Albert and Michel. So thank you for uh, subscribing to our French language publication. And I encourage anyone who is a subscriber or is listening to this to consider getting out a solidarity subscription, which is giving us, to not, not just subscribing to the paper, but giving us a monthly amount, which helps us uh, sustain our activities and continue what we do, including this podcast. Um, so yeah, moving on. Um, 
Yeah, what's uh, so we you talked about it a bit already. The 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 situation economically is not looking good, um, in the in the in Britain. Um, so I don't know. What is this? Is this just the fault of Johnson and Liz Truss? Like, is Sunak gonna sweep in and fix it all and have a nice stable uh, situation? Like, what's his rulership gonna look like? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I think th I think it's going to be uh, a government of crisis. Um, and it's very telling, actually. The the, the bourgeois, they always uh, have this kind of hubris to them, right? Like every leader, they they naively uh, think is going to bring stability. David Cameron, uh, if anyone remembers him, was uh, considered a very reliable representative of British capitalism until he gambled uh, the whole of uh, British capitalism's interests away for his own political interest and, uh, and, and helped lead Britain uh, out of the EU, which was a disaster for British capitalism, or at least helped uh, lose that referendum that led to, to the beginning of that process. Theresa May, when she came in following that, was considered a safe pair of hands by the, the, by the capitalists. And, and the press, you know, that kept on describing her as such. But she then also gambled and, and resulted in the Tories losing the majority uh, and, and actually having a, a hung parliament uh, following the 2017 election. Boris Johnson, when he came in with an 80 seat majority in 2019, he was, uh, you know, thought that of, of being, uh, you know, uh, kind of all powerful. Everyone uh, was talking about the Tories being in power for a generation or more. And, uh, and yet within two years, he was the most unpopular government that Britain had ever had. Uh, and it just shows how superficial the bourgeois are when they, when they analyze these things. Um, whereas interestingly, when we were the only ones who, when Boris got elected in 2019, we said this would be a government of crisis with dynamite in its foundations in the sense that we said, look, I'm, I'll, Boris Johnson himself is 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 uh, you know cavalier and, and reckless, but more importantly, the system is in complete uh, terminal decline. British capitalism is not just seeing a crisis, but a special crisis. You've got a hundred years worth of decline going on, uh, that, and kind of catching up with the uh, with the Tory Party. It's that decline has has found a reflection in these kind of degenerate leaders of the Tory party and in the degeneration of the Tory party itself. And, uh, and therefore, yeah, Britain is, is, is facing this problem where it's not just having a crisis, it's, it's part of a world crisis, we should also say what's happening in Britain is really uh, a harbinger of, of, of kind of the crisis that you can expect in all countries, you know, Sri Lanka shows what's going to happen in all the so-called emerging economies. Well, Britain shows what's going to happen in all the advanced capitalist countries where, you know, the debts, the political instability, the effects of rising interest rates, uh, the stagflation that we're heading into, that's going to be seen in Italy, in France, uh, in, and in the USA and other countries as well. You know, the, the, the Britain is not immune from any of this and, and is, if anything, is, is, is really only exceptional in the sense that it is further ahead in this process um and uh, and so yeah britain is is the first of shot if you like in this world crisis it's new world slump we're entering into and it is it is the first because it is the weakest link if you like like the britain you know the world capitalism is breaking at its weakest link 
Britain has, has lost its industries, it's uncompetitive, the whole economy is based on precarious work, zero hour contracts, gig economy, labor, there's been no investment in industry, it, there's, there's just a reliance on speculation and rentier, parasitic parts of the economy. So you have this special crisis of British capitalism, and that's really what underpins the, the misfortunes, if you like, of all the Tory leaders. Um, Liz Truss was particularly crazy. She was a product of the, this, this reckless kind of gambling uh, casino capitalism that is British capitalism. But she was also then responsible for accelerating and exacerbating and intensifying the process. Rishi Sunak, you know, he, he might be considered a safe pair of hands by the capitalists for now. But all of those contradictions of, that have led to this crisis, the, the debts within uh, British capitalism, the, uh, the, the, the instability, this kind of house of cards that you have with uh, all the speculation and so forth going on in the economy, all of that remains, as does the, 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 the splits, the divisions, the, the mutinous mood in within the Tory party, all of that remains. And therefore, I think the honeymoon period he's going to have is going to be very short-lived. He's actually going to announce uh, a new budget, um, basically reversing all of Liz Truss's measures uh, that she tried to bring in, and, and then announcing, as I say, 40 billion pounds worth of austerity. And not only is that going to show uh, how weak British capitalism is, it's, it's going to probably tip the economy into another recession. At the same time, inflation is unlikely to go down because of the energy crisis and all these other things. So you're gonna see stagflation in Britain. You're gonna see the Tory party ripping itself to pieces uh, because they're gonna be having to pass cut after cut after cut. And this is all taking place when you've already got the working class on the move. The class struggle has already been intensifying in Britain over the summer. There's been a big strike wave. And, uh, and I think what you're looking at uh, in the months ahead is, is nothing but class war, basically, in Britain. And, uh, and this, is, this is quite a turnaround from a, from a country that was considered very stable, uh, where, where the working class was, was considered to be quite sleepy, if you like, and uh, had, had not really moved uh, in any significant way for, for you know, decades. Now we're seeing the working class really flexing its muscles. Um, and who knows what could happen? It's it, the whole situation is so turbulent, so volatile. Uh, and, and maybe we can talk about some of the possibilities. But um, yeah, the, 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 the main thing is it's going to be characterized by, by crisis, instability, and class struggle. Um, and, uh, and therefore, yeah, Rishi Sunak and the Tories are, are going to very quickly experience this uh this kind of nightmare and and there's going to be no way out there's going to be no respite for them yeah you uh were saying that britain is not it's not special in the sense it's just more advanced than many countries and that these sorts of events which some of them have already started to transpire obviously uh, people think of the united states um but yeah they're gonna happen in country after country after country you did leave out one and very important very important country that this is going to happen in Canada. <laughs> we, we're, we're often saying that Britain shows the future of Canada, actually. And yes, Canada has been sort of this more stable country. We haven't had a lot of these developments. We haven't had fully like a Trump type thing 
yet, or a Boris Johnson type thing uh, yet. Uh, and we haven't had the equal reflection on the left. So it's been considered, I think the bourgeoisie are very happy with Justin Trudeau and this like nice, uh, happy liberal capitalist government. Um, but, you know, we're already starting to see that. Um, you're mentioning this stuff about Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. It reminds me of this new conservative leader we have in Canada, Pierre Polyev. He's the same thing. He's this libertarian populist guy um, who's leading in the polls actually now. <laughs> so mm. we'll see what happens. He'll, he might be the next prime minister in, a, in the next election in a couple of years. Um, equally, you have the new leader of the Conservative Party of Alberta, Daniel Smith, who just just took over. Uh, they tried to stop her from taking over. Actually, Jason Kenney, the old premier, talked about how the lunatics were taking over the asylum. Mm, now she's mm. won the leadership, and she reminds me of these people that you're talking about. Yeah, sounds so very familiar, that, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the shit's going to hit the fan, or is already starting to hit the fan there, obviously in the early days, but we can learn a lot from studying these events in Britain to see the direction of things. Uh, and the left, and the movement in particular, and the labor movement in particular, in the main can learn a hell of a lot of what to do and also more importantly what not to do because there's been a lot of mistakes mm. in the left uh in the mainstream left in the labor party we've talked about this in the past podcast don't really have that yeah. much time to get into it now with the, the errors of corbin and the corbin movement which has allowed this partially allowed the situation to take this road um uh, but it is not all doom and gloom. I mean, you've already kind of hinted there. You kind of talked a bit about the class struggle. Um, there is a rising strike wave in Britain. Uh, and with uh, Sunak coming in, this $40 billion hole, they're going to try to make the workers pay for this. This is not a recipe for a nice, stable bourgeois government. It's a recipe for, well, like you said, the honeymoon will be short-lived. You're already having class anger, right? Um, uh, some main trade union leaders, like what the leader of the RMT said some things like you need a working class uprising. Um, mm -hmm. so I don't know, you want to speak to that? Just give, give people a bit of an idea of what's this rising strike wave and, and the, the, you know, obviously it's the, the capitalism is degenerating. Capitalist politics is degenerating, but it's not all doom and gloom. There is hope on the side of the working class. Um, so I don't know, you want to say a few words about that? Yeah, definitely. There's, I mean, there's enormous confidence, I think, actually, on the left and, and amongst working people right now, because you see these unions mobilizing, the, the railway workers are spread across three different unions, but the main one, the, the, the railway union, the RMT, has a leader, Mick Lynch, who, uh, who's very militant in, in his language. He's the one who, who said, yeah, we need an uprising. He, he's talked about having a movement rivaling the general strike the suffragettes and the chartists all rolled into one i mean if he actually you know were to call it by its real name that would be a revolution because <laughs> these were revolutionary events like the chartists in britain um so you know they're talking very boldly and, and they're talking in class language they talk about the working class they talk about the i think uh, mick lynch even quoted uh the the founder of our organization ted grant uh didn't name him but he, he used his phrase you know not a light bulb shine not a telephone rings without the permission of the working class you know this this is the kind of language they're talking about workers power working class militancy and those strikes that you've seen on the railways over the summer 
have really opened the floodgates. And now you've got lots of other uh, unions coming out on strike. The Postal Workers Union, which is even bigger actually, has, has also been taking many days of strike action. Uh, the, the, um, the barristers, even these middle-class layers have been really proletarianized and you had all out strikes by the barristers um, that, that led to the courts being shut down. You've had uh, bus drivers winning big pay rises. You've had bin workers out on strike also winning big pay rises, actually even above inflation in some cases. So it shows that where you are militant, where you have all out action, that you can, uh, you can push back the boss's attacks. And what's most noticeable is, um, or, or most uh, encouraging actually, is that the unions have already started to coordinate this action. Um, at the beginning of uh, this month, on the 1st of October, there was uh, a, a joint strike across the railway workers, the, the, the bus drivers, the postal workers, and the dockers as well. Two of the biggest ports in the UK were shut down. So you can really see workers mobilizing and showing the power of the working class, you know, the ports, the buses, the railways, like they're shutting down these key industries and, and bringing, you know, the whole of, of these networks and infrastructure to a standstill. And, um, and it's, it's giving enormous confidence to other workers to strike and that you actually had the TUC, which is like the umbrella organization for the unions, kind of like the AFL or, the, or whatever it is in the, in the USA. Apologies, I don't know what the Canadian uh, equivalent is. Um, yeah, so our version of that, the TUC, they actually uh, endorsed motions at the recent conference just a week ago, calling for mass coordinated action and protest. Um, in other words, all the big unions trying to join up their struggles and have uh, joint action, uh, rolling action potentially. Um, and this is, this is, you know, a big step forward for the labor movement. Um, you know, all of this has happened within the space of a year, really, uh, since the, the end of lockdowns. And uh, this, this is only going to escalate. You've got um, national strike ballots uh, amongst the teachers, the civil servants, the lecturers, um, the, the nurses as well, which will be very important in the NHS, in the healthcare service. Uh, and they're, they're talking about doctors and, and others coming out as well. So you could really be heading towards uh, a situation of a general strike even has been raised. Um, whether or not it happens or not, we, 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 you know, we'll, have to, we'll have to see. The, the trade union leaders will probably balk at the idea and, and step back from it before it gets to that uh, moment, to, to, to that point. But the fact that such a situation is 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 developing that that the union leaders are talking about it that it's you know that the, the idea of a general strike has been raised in the mainstream press all of this is uh is quite astonishing stuff and it and it's it's only going to develop more you know they're talking about another winter of discontent really and as i say this is all already happening before the austerity uh has even come in so that's only going to stir things up even more you might find a situation as a result where um, actually the bourgeois ditches the Tories and, and tries to bring in uh, Starmer's Labour government to carry out this austerity. And, and Starmer has made it very clear he would be very willing to do that. He's, he's almost identical in terms of his programme to Rishi Sunak. He's, he's a knight of the establishment. He's, uh, you know, Sir Keir Starmer and... Uh, 
he also at the recent Labour conference was talking about balancing the books, sound money, fiscal responsibility, all these kind of buzzwords, that are music to the ears of the bourgeois and the ruling class. And, and it's, it, is, it is often the case that when the Tories are in crisis, a right-wing Labour government will be brought in to clean up the, the mess. And uh, that's exactly what happened in 1930s during the Great Depression. You had uh, the Ramsay MacDonald right-wing Labour government that ended up carrying out austerity by forming a national government with the Tories and the Liberals. So that's kind of the, the period we're heading into as, as a possibility. Um, whether that happens or not, whether whether they try and uh, bring in a general election to get a Labour government in, well, we don't know. We'll have to see. But uh, either way, if, whether it's with the Sunak uh, Tory government or a Starmer Labour government, it's going to, as I say, be government of crisis, governments trying to implement austerity. And all of these uh, governments, whoever they are, whoever's in number 10 Downing Street, they're going to face this almighty movement of the working class that is brewing, that is developing, that is escalating, that is broadening. And uh, basically what's really lacking in this situation is a revolutionary leadership um, because every, all the other conditions are there, actually. Like Lenin talked about four conditions for revolution. He talked about splits in the ruling class. Well, you very much see that in Britain. Uh, he talked about the, 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 the middle classes uh, kind of being in a frenzy, a state of frenzy. You're seeing that in Britain as I say, with mortgages going through the roof and uh, small businesses going bankrupt. We talked about the working class being on the move, looking for a way out. And that's very clearly the case, and particularly amongst the youth, we should say, at the moment. Then he said the missing factor, the fourth factor is, is that of a revolutionary leadership. And that's obviously what needs to be built. And uh, yeah, it just shows you uh, how, yeah, the, the class struggle is really coming back to the fore. Just as an aside, actually, it's 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 very noticeable during the um, during the ten days of official mourning we had around Elizabeth's, uh, you know, just after Elizabeth's death, you had a lot of flag waving, wall to wall propaganda, jingoism, patriotism, all this blaring out of the BBC and all the all the papers. And at that point, people were worried because they thought this is going to cut across the class struggle. But what was noticeable is the minute the funeral had happened and the ceremony and the pomp was over, everything went back to the, the class struggle again. The strikes resumed, the protests were, were happening again, the crisis reemerged in the UK economy, in the Tory party. And within a couple of weeks, we had Liz Truss on her way out. So it just shows you how fast things are developing and the direction they're heading in, which is not reaction, but revolution. Yeah, so I guess <laughs> this is positive. Uh, we should be optimistic. We should not be cynical. I think quite often on the left, people can look at what's happening at the top with the bourgeoisie and go, oh, what was me? This is really bad. It's always bad up there. You always got some right-wing conservative or liberal attacking working-class people. And these days, you got a lot of that. You got more of that as capitalism enters crisis. You could even have, you know, people might, be, I bet you some people in the labor movement in Britain would be, if there's election, they'd be like, yay, Starmer. What's he going to do with striking workers? Is he going to do anything different than Sunak in these conditions? I doubt it, you know, and that might, that could lead people to be depressed. But yeah, we are Marxists. We should not be depressed or cynical about the situation in the slightest because there is hope. Uh, you got to have faith in the working class. And as you described, there's an amazing sense of class anger 
and there's a developing sense of that sort of collective class solidarity consciousness, uh, which is transforming or it's expressing itself on the industrial front in terms of strikes. Um, you talked a bit about we're nearing the end of this, uh, which I think is a good point to end off on the question of revolutionary leadership. So yeah, really, that's what the IMT is all about. We need to build the forces of Marxism because we need revolutionary leadership. Because without that, the situation is quite uh, pessimistic, to be honest. <laughs> uh, what's going to happen, you know? The right wing always, the capitalists always seem to be able to take, or the reformists always seem to be able to take advantage of situations and, uh, and turn things into their opposite. But yeah, we need revolutionary leadership because the working class needs... Uh, ideas to help them win, right? Uh, and that is the, really the role that we want to play. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, why don't you just tell us a bit about Socialist Appeal, like what what the British section of the IMT has been up to. I know you guys have had a lot of big successes lately, have grown very rapidly. Um, we just had this RevFest, which maybe you could comment on, and then we could, yeah, we could end the episode just talking about the building of the forces of Marxism in uh, Britain. Well, yeah, as you say, we're incredibly optimistic in this period. Uh, you know, it's there's never been a better time to be a Marxist. I, I think we can safely say, you know, we've got comrades in the organization here who've been around since, you know, the 60s. And they remember the big class struggles in Britain in the 70s, which are probably the nearest parallel to what we're the, the most recent parallel, we could say. They remember the miners' strike in the 80s. And, and they will tell you, there has never been a period like this in terms of the instability, the intensity of the crisis, and uh, and most importantly, in terms of the radicalization, and particularly amongst the youth, as I, as I said uh, just a minute ago. And I think that's where we're getting our energy from above all else, where we're seeing uh, the potential for building. Um, we've just come out of uh, our, our freshers campaign, where we've been um, on campuses across the UK uh, as part of the Marxist Student Federation, signing people up uh, as communists. We've been putting on meetings on why we are communists. And, and we've seen over a thousand people attend those meetings in about 50 different campuses. Um, we've signed up almost 4,000 people to the Marxist Student Federation. People coming up to us openly saying, I, I want to learn about Marxism. I want to join a revolutionary organization. I want to fight for revolution. I am a communist and looking for theory, looking for ideas. And, uh, and this is really, a, you know, something we've seen every year more and more. But this year, it's been particularly noticeable how uh, advanced the consciousness is of, of young people coming. They've already read Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky, in many cases, they're just looking to join something to actually get organized and put these ideas into practice. So that's been incredibly encouraging and uh and and if anyone uh listening to this is either in the uk or knows anyone in the uk who would like to join then obviously put them in touch with us and and uh and and you know do get in touch join the marxists in britain and, and in the international marxist tendency and yeah i think above all yeah the the recent uh revolution festival that we we've just held uh the weekend just gone that really was the the kind of icing on the cake it, it was there was 700 comrades activists from across whole of europe we had uh comrades from across the imt uh, attending uh from about 14 different countries i think there was even a couple of canadians in the audience and 
it was, yeah, a brilliant event, international, uh, revolutionary, incredibly radical, enthusiastic, and very optimistic. Um, great sessions on a, on a range of topics uh, from, from things like the, the history of the, the struggles in the 70s in Britain through to the Iranian revolution. And, and we're very lucky to have a speaker from Iran uh, speak to the audience there. But the most noticeable thing was, yeah, the, the incredible energy and enthusiasm and the incredible optimism at this event, which was reflected actually in, uh, in the amount of sacrifice people were willing to show. We had a collection to go towards this uh, office campaign that we're running across the international Marxist tendency. We're trying to buy a new office uh, to help put the forces of Marxism on a solid foundation uh, here in Britain and internationally. And, uh, and, and we raised an incredible 27,000 pounds just in one hour at this collection. And that was on top of 160,000 pounds that have been raised over the last six months uh, as part of this campaign, just in Britain. And, and I know the IMT has been raising hundreds of thousands extra on top of that to, to, to help us collectively buy uh, a property and, and therefore be free of landlordism uh, when it comes to our organization. But, this just goes to show, I think, really the kind of dedication that people uh, are willing to show, the sacrifice that, that very young people even are willing to, to show. And, uh, and I think Lenin put it very well. He who has the youth has the future. You know, we are the party of the future in that respect. And uh, the forces of Marxism are, are growing in Britain and internationally. And, uh, and, and everything we've seen over the last few months from the, the political crisis, the economic crisis, through to the thousands of people signing up for the Marxist Student Federation and the hundreds attending Revolution Festival, all of those leave me and all of the comrades here very confident that we can uh, see a revolution in Britain and that we will be the ones to lead it. Well, thank you. Thank you a lot, Adam. I think that really helped uh, people to understand the situation uh, in the UK and also ends on a note of optimism. Uh, and we can all look to what is going on in the UK to see the future of events in Canada. Um, yeah, and very exciting to hear about the development of the, the organization as well. Uh, which is very inspiring. So over 700 people at RevFest. I, we've never done that. Um, <laughs> on that note, we do have a big similar type school coming up in it's actually next february it's in like i guess four and a half months or so or my math is wrong three and a half months uh the montreal marxist winter school so i just like to end on a, a plug here for this this is a similar to the rev fest that adam described it's a weekend of discussions on various topics on the weekend of february 18th and 19th next year uh, and it'll be in person for the first time in three years, I guess, uh, uh, in Montreal. We're mobilizing people from all over the country and even all over the world. There'll be people from Europe. There'll be people from the United States coming up. Um, yeah, and we're looking to have the biggest one that we've ever had, biggest in-person one. Obviously, online's a little different. And the theme is connected to something we already talked about. It's the Revolutionary Party. So we have a series of presentations, discussions on the Revolutionary Party, what that is, uh, various attempts to build one, successes and failures, and various debates about the building of a revolutionary party so we can learn from that. Um, yeah, so I encourage people to uh, go online to marxist.ca school 
register for the Montreal Marxist Winter School today. Uh, if you're in Toronto, we do have buses that will be taking people up because we were going to have a lot of people from Toronto coming. So I really recommend you can go on there. There's an option to pay for the bus and, and get on the bus with us and come up to, uh, to Montreal on the weekend of February 18th and 19th for the Montreal Marxist Winter School. Well, I think that does it for the podcast this week. Uh, again, thank you, Adam. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll be doing this again in a couple of months. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, this, is, this, is this, this is very interesting uh, to follow. Obviously, after decades of really quite boring politics now, due to the crisis of capitalism, the class struggle, you're getting a whole series of convulsions, polarization, radicalization, uh, and opportunities uh, for the movement, for the revolutionary movement to transform society uh, and fight for socialism. You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca, and we will be doing this podcast every week, so we hope that you tune in again.